Thank you for your kindness and, and having me back. <laughs> it's, uh, it's good to be at a church like this. I don't know if, if you all are aware, but in my observation, just uh, hearing what we call the liturgy, so this order of service, it's thoughtful. Uh, when you consider the songs that are sung, the prayers that are prayed, and the word that is preached, there's a cohesiveness to that, and so I hope you guys recognize that. Uh, not many churches uh, do that. They, they're kind of just haphazard in their worship setting, so um, I'm encouraged by that and being here, so thank you uh, for having me. And this morning we're going to be in the book of Titus, in Titus chapter 2. And we're going to be dealing with primarily verses 11 through 15. So, Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. I'm reading out of the New American Standard, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And these things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for a time that we can gather and sing praises to you, that we can take time to give back a, a portion of what you provided to us financially, as well as a time to hear your word. And, and I pray that as your word goes forth, uh, that you would accomplish what you please with it, that you have prepared the hearts to receive it. May our ears and our minds be open uh, to this truth, and that as we leave here, Lord, that we would not go away unchanged, God. And Lord, we're thankful for your love and your grace. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we come to this point of uh, the book of Titus, we have arrived at uh, a theological core of this epistle. Uh, here, Paul, he has laid a foundation of truth uh, from which all preceding instruction rests. And what has led up to this point? Well, leading up to this in verse 5 of chapter 1, uh, Paul gives the reason why he left Titus in Crete, and it was to set things in order or to set things straight, um, because at this point in time there, were, uh, there was a deviation. There were people coming in, they were preaching uh, a false truth, and um, as well as the Cretans, you know, having been uh, living a life for so long, in a sinful manner, it would have been hard for them to fully come out of that and be transformed in, in a sense without a good godly undergirding of discipleship and guidance and truth. So uh, Titus was, was to set things straight here on the island of Crete. And to accomplish this, he was to appoint elders uh, in every city on this island. So Paul, he gives the qualification for these elders in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. He has expressed and characterized the false teachers and the, the unsaved Cretans in verses 10 through 16. 
In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he directed Titus to instruct multi-generations from within the church, i.e. the older men and older women, younger women, younger men, and even the bond slaves were to live righteously. And so if you were to read the whole letter, you'd be able to glean that the emphasis is uh, God's sovereign purpose for his people to live righteously. And at the core of Titus 2, it zeroes in on grace. Um, If we took a deep dive in the study of this concept of grace, this unmerited favor from God, we would find a beautiful multi-layered tapestry. And certainly we don't have time to delve into that today, but I would encourage you to, uh, I would challenge you to to study uh, God's grace and what it looks like from beginning to end in His Scripture. But no doubt it's critical to understand that God's grace saves us from the wrath of God. It saves us from hell, but it also has saved us from sin, from its penalty, from its dominion, and grace working in the life of a sinner, it provides a witness, a bringing about God's plan and purpose for salvation to its fulfillment. And today we're going to look at five provisions of God's grace, five provisions of God's grace. We're going to see it provides salvation provides instruction, provides hope, holiness, and a motivation for ministry. Salvation, instruction, hope, holiness, and a motivation for ministry. And so the first point, God's grace provides salvation. We see this in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And we don't see this in our English translations, but in the original text, the word for appeared it is fronted in the sentence to add emphasis. So it's stressing this groundbreaking, this this transformative nature of the appearing of God's grace. Uh, One commentator described the appearing in a word picture as saying it's that of a dawn or daybreak when the sun leaps over the horizon and is in view. As the sun shines forth with bright intensity, so does the grace of God through Christ's salvific work. So if you can imagine when there's, there's darkness and then when dawn or daybreak comes and that sun starts to rise over the horizon, it's bright, it's shiny, it's intense, it's captivating. And so as the appearing of God's grace. And when I first read this passage, I was reminded of for, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. Many of you may be familiar with this text that says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we behold the glory of of the only begotten of the Father who's full of grace and truth. Uh, As we consider what John says alongside this passage, we begin to understand that he's not merely speaking of the divine attribute of grace, but that he's speaking of Jesus himself, grace incarnate. John Scott commented on verse 11 saying, of course, grace did not come into existence when Jesus came. God has always been gracious, and indeed, He is the God of all grace. But grace appeared visibly in Jesus Christ. God's saving grace, given us before the beginning of time, has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. It was, a brightly, it was brightly displayed in His lowly birth, in His gracious words, in compassionate deeds, and above all, in His atoning death. And He Himself was full of grace. End quote. 
So Jesus, he's our supreme, gracious gift to fallen humanity. And unquestionably included with this, yes, is the divine attribute of grace. Hear me well, I'm not saying that that is not uh, wrapped into this idea. But I do want to point out that the particular doctrine in Titus 2 that on which Paul, he's grounding his ethical appeal, namely the reason why we ought to live godly, is based, it teeters on these two appearings. And so you have verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. This is that Jesus, the advent of Christ when he came uh, incarnate, right? And then verse 13, we'll see later that we're looking forward to the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That has the future in view of a future coming of the Lord. And between these two appearings, there's a saving significance. And what are we saved from? What are we saved for? So on the one hand, we're saved from sin, and we're saved for the purpose of God's glory. We're saved to live a life that glorifies God. And on the other hand, we're saved to a promised glory, where in a final sense, Uh, Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. And we live, we ought to live, with these certainties in view. And it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around, but when I observed this text, I observed that forgiveness of sin is not at the heart of salvation in this passage. And certainly forgiveness is not disconnected from salvation, but here in this passage, there's, there's a heart of salvation where Titus is demonstrating that, that it's, it's about our deliverance from sin to live upright before men and before God. So he's calling people to holiness. And Titus 2, I'm sorry, Titus 1, verses 6 through 9, it gives us the godly qualifications of elders, which I alluded to earlier. And then there's a contrast where Paul, he speaks to those in the camp of false teachers in verse 16, and he says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless of any good deed. So there's these false professors saying, yes, we know God, but by their deeds, they're denying him. They're detestable, they're disobedient, and they're worthless for any good deed. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Titus is speaking things that are fitting to healthy doctrine. He's instructing others to live in accordance with this truth. And in verse 7, when speaking of Titus, it says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine dignified. So Titus himself was called to be an example of one who is living out his purpose for the Lord by way of demonstrating good deeds. Verse 14, we'll see that grace purifies us for zealous, or to be zealous for good works. So God is purifying his people and causing them to be zealous for good works. And if you were to read on in chapter 3, you would see that there's a command for Titus to remind the Cretan believers to live godly. And particularly in verse 5, though, Paul was wise to note that we're not saved on the basis of good deeds that are, or deeds that are done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So as he's building this truth, you know, that we are to live godly in light of the grace of God and the work that he's doing in our lives. Remember this, though. You're not saved based on those righteous deeds. You're saved based upon the mercy of God. For God is rich in mercy and has made us alive. But all this to say that we experience salvation 
such a salvation that ignites us to right living. Um, What a beautiful truth, and it doesn't have to be cumbersome. It should be a freeing thing. We should willfully and, and eagerly pursue this. And what does the phrase bringing salvation to all men mean? First, we should note that God's love is represented here. The extent of God's love is represented. For we know that, yes, He loves all humanity, but He has a special love on those whom He has called His own. And I shouldn't have to state this, but given the emergent church and the the progressiveness that's rearing its ugly face in Christianity, I will state this. Paul is not teaching universalism. He's not teaching that somehow all people will be saved. Rather, it could be understood as a collective use of the word, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation fall under this umbrella, that people from every economic status, or men, women, children, even bond slaves, can experience this salvation. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for all, but effectual only for those who would believe. And out of all humanity, it's only those who trust in Christ that will be saved. And so ask yourself, am I a saved one? Are you one who is covered by the grace of God and has embraced that first appearing? This is what God's grace provides. It provides salvation. Secondly, God's grace provides instruction. See this in verse 12 where it says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And some of your translations may say teaching or training. But how often do you think about the grace of God in the sense that it teaches or that it trains, that it instructs? It's instructive in nature. It's corrective and loving Uh, We don't cease to learn from God's grace. Uh, It it carries a sense of a parental discipline or chastisement when you really get to the root of it. And although salvation is free, it was very costly. That our Savior was despised. He endured suffering. He was hurt. He was beaten, battered, and bruised. He was nailed to the cross as one of the accused. And so grace, what grace teaches me, is that He owes me nothing, but yet I owe Him everything. And what does grace instruct us here in verse 12 of Titus? Negatively, it instructs us to say no to ungodliness, to deny the worldly passions, the the strong desires and impulses and lusts that arise out of an ungoverned flesh. And positively, it instructs us to live sensibly, upright, and godly in this present age. We are to say yes to a a well-rounded life here and now. And and what I see here is a a dual effect of salvation that God regenerates. He brings the dead man from death to life and then he he puts them on this trajectory of a progressive sanctification that as he lives this life, he is beginning to become more and more like Christ. Thus, grace disciplines us to renounce our old life and to live a new one, to turn from ungodliness to godliness, to uh, turn from self-centeredness to self-control, to turn from the worldly deceitful ways that heavily influence us to a discerning uh, guidance that's found in God. And I thought it was helpful 
what one commentator had to say when speaking on the three terms uh, that, that are used here for how we are to live. He says in verse 12, sensibly, and this is how we regard ourselves, meaning we regard ourselves and, and live in a manner that's self-controlled. We live in a manner where our, our lives have the right priority. We're sensible. We're to be righteous, live righteously. It tells us how we live in regard to those around us, meaning that as we live righteous, people see that we're different. We're set apart. We're distinct from all those around us. And then to live godly means that we live in a way that we reverence God. We, we live in such a way that demonstrates that we fear the Lord and that we yield to His truth. It's challenging and it's, it's convicting. Grace teaches us that it's transformative in nature. And we see this in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Many of you are probably familiar with that text. It says we're saved by grace through faith and not by works, lest any man should boast. It says that we're a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we're prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. So God is recreating us in Christ for good works, these good works that he has created beforehand, that we may walk in them. But see, we couldn't do this outside of Christ, so he brought us in and transformed us in such a way that we could walk in them. And this transformation, this new birth produces a new life, which also uh, we see um, brings us out of the power or the grip of sin. The, the power has been broken, and clearly there's an illustration of this, Romans 6, if you were ever to have time to read through that, um, really brings that to light. Colossians 3, verses 9 through 10 says, Do not lie to one another, since you have stripped off the old self and its evil practices, and have put on the new life, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. So he's saying that grace has taught us that, that God has repositioned us and we put off our old self. We put on the new and we walk in such a way that's renewed day by day in the knowledge according to the one who created us. And grace, it can be twisted though, sadly. This instruction of grace can get perverted. And I've seen it. I've been in a camp that, that embraced it where it says that, you know, you prayed that prayer. You, you made the profession. You're good. It doesn't matter how you're living out your life. And then you bring up Romans 6. Well, no, no, no. We get Romans 6. You shouldn't continue in sin. The grace may abound. But they're just being a carnal Christian. But they're under the banner of grace, right? They're under that banner of grace. And they perverted what it truly teaches. See, we live in a world where we're tempted to say yes to every desire, to every ungodliness. But when we deny these things, we're demonstrating that we rightly understand what grace is. We embrace what it teaches about who we were and about who we are and about how we are to live here and now in this present age. First John tells us that the one who practices righteousness is righteous. He is born of God. That's a weighty text, but that's an encouraging text. We would be called children of God walking in righteousness, not because of any good thing that's in us, but because of God's grace and the work that he's doing in us. And we know that God's word serves as a grace for this instruction. That's why it's so vital to embrace and to be studying and to be immersed in the word of God 
to be strengthened to pursue this and to endure through it. Uh, coupled with, with this, uh, I see that a lot of preachers, they don't want to talk about a couple of things like repentance or rejecting grace. First, repentance, it's a change of heart that leads to a change of mind, which leads to a change of action. We must come into an agreement with what God says. So we, we, once we're in agreement with that which opposed God, we turn from that, we embrace the truth of God, we have turned our back on evil and its practices, and we cling to what is good. But there are a lot of preachers who don't want to preach on turning from sin and rejecting sin. And second, they don't want to preach about this rejection of the gift of grace and its instruction and recognize that there, it faces, we face consequences when we do reject this grace. Where we know that the wrath of God abides on the ungodly. The wrath of God will be poured out on ungodliness. And so people need to hear this, that outside of Christ, you're hopeless and helpless. We don't need a feel-good sermon. We need to come face-to-face with the reality and the consequences and embrace this truth. We need to heed this instruction. Uh, grace, it teaches us about a blessed hope as well, a hope of a return. If we really understand this grace and it's working in the heart of a person, there will be an awareness for the return of Christ, the hope in that return, and there's an evidence that there's a life that's preparing for the return. It's a glorious thing. And so this leads me to my third point, that grace provides hope. We see this in verse 13. Look for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This blessed hope is not a wishful thinking. This is a, 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 an expectation of, an anticipation for. And it's interesting to see the flow of thought. So verse 11, we had the past reality of the appearing that led to salvation. Verse 12 spoke of a present reality for the believer in salvation. And then verse 13 looks toward a future reality, a future salvation. And so I would ask you, do you or are you in watchful anticipation for the future hope? Do you live now with the future in mind? You know the old saying that you could be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good, and I think that's wrong thinking because we ought to be heavenly minded so that we can be of earthly good. And I believe that the blessed hope, in a general reference, it's speaking to the second coming and a final resurrection. And I would glean from Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, that says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of a lowly condition into conformity with His glorious body by the exertion of power that He has even subject all things to himself. As believers, we recognize that our citizenship is in heaven. And we ought to be eagerly awaiting our Savior. And that one day he'll transform this lowly condition into the glorious body that, has, that he has awaiting for us. And that he has the power, he has the power to do this because all things are subject to him. So we can confidently expect that God's going to do what He says He's going to do. He has the power to do it, and His word is yes and amen. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as of yet what we will be. But we'll know that when He appears, 
we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope set on himself, or set on him, purifies for himself just as he is pure. So there's this expectation tone here, this expecting tone that says how we're, the, the, the appearing has not yet come of how we will be, but we know this, that when he appears, we will be like him. There's an encouragement there. And, and also undergirding that says that he's going to purify us for himself. As he purifies his people, we'll see later, we can rejoice in that. Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is Christ your life? When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's going to be a revelation of the saints with Christ one day. Are you eagerly waiting for that day? That ought to change the, our perspective and how we live now. Amen? See, John Kitchen said it well. He stated that a balanced faith looks back restfully upon the revelation of God and His grace, and it looks forward to the revelation of God and His glory. So this balanced faith, it looks back to that revelation of God and His grace and looks forward to the revelation of God and His glory. And uh, this, is, this basically sums up, I believe, the, the central truth of our hope when we recognize this balance. Uh, and uh, I appreciated the language of Canon Hay Aiken when he's speaking on this. He said, uh, there are two comings of Christ, and this is what it looks like. There's, there's two windows in a schoolhouse, this, this, the school of grace, right? And there's a western window where the solemn light shines in from Calvary, and through the eastern window shines a light that's bright. It shines of the heralding of a brighter day. Thus, the school of grace is well lit. And we cannot afford to do without the light from the west or the east. At his coming, our great God and Savior will perfect our salvation. He came the first time in humility and will come a second time in glory. He came the first time and was judged by men. He'll come a second time and judge all men. Are you eagerly awaiting your great God and Savior? And I do want to point out quickly a theological point here in our text in verse 13. Now, the King James Version, it renders this the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to woodenly read that in the Greek, that's probably how you would translate it, but there is a grammatical aspect to this text that points to the deity of Jesus. And basically, without getting into the weeds of it, you have our great God, or great God and Savior, speaking of one person. And essentially, you could put an equal sign there and put Jesus Christ. So the great God and Savior is Jesus Christ. And that's how the structure is in the Greek text, and that's how I would translate this. Uh, it's interesting in Titus, you know, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Grace and peace from the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, grace and peace from the God and Father and Jesus Christ. And then he adds, our Savior. So there he's demonstrating Jesus Christ is our Savior in verse 4. And then in verse 10, he says, God, our Savior. 
referring to the Father. Verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, the kindness of God, our Savior. So he's referring to the Father there. But then in verse 6 of chapter 3, he says, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, who is our Savior? The Father? Yes. Jesus? The Son? Yes. The Holy Spirit? Yes. But I do want to point out, though, that in this text, there is a theological thing there, the deity of Christ, because you'll have Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses that say, oh, well, it's speaking of here, God and Savior, it's Jehovah, or it's Elohim, and the Savior is Jesus. But no, it's the same person. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is God. So we can be confident in knowing that Christ saves and that he's coming again. Amen? So God's grace provides salvation, provides instruction, provides hope. And fourth, God's grace provides holiness. And we see this in verse 14. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So greater than any sacrifice of a bull or goat, we as believers, we get to reap the benefit of a perfect sacrifice one who died in our place. The verb used here for redeemed is, means to be released, uh, someone who was released from captivity or one who was bought with a payment from his ransom. So there's a twofold manner that Christ redeemed us here in this passage. It says uh, his people uh, will be basically delivered from all wickedness, liberating them from its bondage. And it also says he purified them. He has made us holy. And this language is very Old Testament-esque. Uh, it has a flavor of the Passover. Um, Yahweh's chosen people, Israel, were delivered out of bondage from Egypt. And they were um, also delivered from, obviously, their, their enemies and oppression. But when a, a judgment came, when the death angel was coming, their lives were spared if they had put the Passover blood on their doorposts. And there's also a, somewhat of a foreshadowing of the, the purification of sin in the temple, of temple sacrifices and blood offerings that we see in the Old Testament. But on a greater scale, what we have here is that Christ has delivered us from our enemy, Satan. He's delivered us from sin and death. He's passed over his people by the blood of Christ. And where we could stand before him holy and blameless. Mark 10:45 says even the son of man did not come to serve but to be served and he gave his life and was a ransom for many. And what what this ought to produce what we see here in this passage is a people who are zealous for good deeds. God wants his redeemed people to live a life of zeal. Not just that we would be willing to obey him, but that we would be eager to obey him. That we would be eager to live righteously, and not a righteousness of our own, but one that's predicated on this foreign righteousness that's been imputed to us through Jesus Christ. A holy living here and now, and to one day be glorified in all of its fullness. And the theme of good deeds, it's a rich one in Titus, and furthermore, I believe that the Bible argues that they are the necessary evidence 
for one who is truly saved. And that's challenging, you know, because we, we have the flesh that's attached to us. And so when I say this, I'm not talking about, you know, there, there's this kind of a lingering sin that you're constantly butting heads with, but that people who are truly in Christ, they're going to live differently. We have a reason, we have a purpose, and God's grace endures us through this. So what have we examined so far? We, we saw that God's grace provides salvation. Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, died the death we deserved. He was raised. And, and because of that, that's an unmerited grace that has been distributed to all those who would put faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus, that he saved us from God's wrath, from sin, from hell. And then there's a grace that instructs. It continually teaches us on how we're to live, how we uh, ought to live, but also why we are to live the way that we live. God's word instructs us on that, I believe, and that's a grace that we need to embrace. And God's grace provides hope that we can be assured that there's a future glory, that Christ's second coming is going to save his people finally from the presence of sin and glorify their bodies to one day reside with him for eternity. And great, God's grace provides holiness. Jesus has purchased his people from bondage and purified himself a people to live holy unto him. Lastly, God's grace provides motivation for service. We see this in verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And you may be thinking, well, how does God's grace provide motivation in that? <laughs> you will see. <laughs> so the chapter, uh, chapter 2 began with a command and it ends with a command to teach. And Paul is charging Titus to execute his responsibility, demanding that he teach those around him with authority. And really, it's in order to bring about an obedient response. He's to speak, exhort, rebuke. And these three imperatives, they identify the need for a proclamation, for an application, and for correction in the Word. And Paul lays before Titus this threefold task that I believe is for every Christian it's for every preacher, it's for every leader in the church. And what I observe is that when we truly understand God's grace, we're motivated to this ministry. We, we understand we're undeserved of any good thing that God sends our way, and so we, we hold fast to what he's doing in and through us, and we want others to experience that. We want to proclaim that. We want to we have a task to speak, right? There's a message to proclaim, the truth to be told. And this truth, it comes with miraculous change. And we want to proclaim to the lost so that they can experience this truth that we as believers have experienced. We, and we can't outlive the gospel, so we want to continue to proclaim this truth even to believers, right? To remind them of what God has done and will do. And so we, want to, we have a task to exhort. We bring people we charge them with their sin, but also we reinforce that there's hope. We want to encourage them in such a way that, that will be led to a grace that's greater than their sin. And there's a task to rebuke, that we would preach to a person so that the, the eyes of the sinner would be opened to their sin, that the misguided would be led to realize their mistakenness, that the heart of the inconsiderate would be pricked with awareness. So the goal is to lead them to repentance. If, if we have experienced this grace, we want others 
to experience it as well. It's not always easy to speak truth. It can be easy to encourage, and certainly it's not always easy to rebuke. But let me ask you this. What if you're on the other side of it? Are you willing to receive it? Somebody speaking truth in your life, are you willing to receive it? Are you willing to receive encouragement? Are you willing to receive the rebuke? And do you have people in your life that could speak, exhort, and rebuke? If you do, are you willing to receive it? If you don't, what I would challenge you with today is to find those people, to surround yourself with the people who are eager to ministry. And the time is now to eagerly grow in your faith, to keep your eyes fixed on the grace And when you are challenged or feeling burned out, when you feel defeated, when you you feel hurt and sorrow, may God's grace motivate you to service. Because a lot of times that's the last thing you want to do. But when we do that, when we focus on the grace of God and when we are others-focused, it takes our eyes off of ourselves. And in closing of this text, Paul has commissioned Titus to instruct the Cretan church in both doctrine and and ethics. Uh, and in this instruction, he's to do so with authority. And Paul used authority in the New Testament as a command from God. He also used it as a command from his apostolic authority. But here he's, he's commanding Titus to carry out this ministry with authority. And yet, like Titus, the only way we can truly have authority in our ministry is when it's operating out of God's authoritative word, the authority of the scripture. When we bear the truth upon somebody's life, they're coming face to face with divine authority. It's not our authority, it's his. And I want you to know that there's an urgency and an obligation. There was an urgency and an obligation for Titus, and there is one for us as well. And this part is interesting Paul had a similar charge to Timothy as he says, let no one disregard you. And essentially what he's saying is don't allow them to overlook you. Let them respect you. It could be seen as a warning that he's to live a life that reflects what he's teaching. If there's, in this case, where he's living out what he's proclaiming, what we would tend to see happen was, would be that people wouldn't ignore what he's proclaiming, that they would that they couldn't bring a charge against them. And the same could be said of us as when we are living out what, what we're teaching. People, they see that. And they, they pause. They're not quick to ignore the proclamation. And they can't bring a charge against you. So in doing so, it provokes an obedient response from them. But imagine this, that at the root of their disregard, they are disregarding the Scripture. Right? So if we're coming by way of authority, the Word of God, and we're speaking, we're exhorting, we're rebuking, if they disregard it, they're disregarding the Word of God. How often do people, week after week, come and sit under preaching and walk away unchanged? How often, week after week, do people come face to face with the truth of God's Word, calling them to change and they disregard it. How often do they disregard the power that is working and those of the people of God around them? Seeing that God's doing, He's moving, 
in their life, but yet they disregard it. They don't want to be a part of that. They're disregarding the power of God. They're disregarding His Word. But we as Christians, we live our lives out of the gospel. We live our lives with gospel logic, with gospel truth, and there we find God's grace, which motivates us to ministry. And so I want to end with a couple of final questions. One is, have you experienced the saving grace of God? Have you recognized that you are a sinner by nature? Right? We're all sinners by nature to one day sin by choice. And because of that, there is a chasm in our relationship between us and God. And because of the sin, we're deserved of God's wrath and judgment for all eternity. But God, who is rich in mercy, He sent Christ to die for sin. And He was buried and He was raised. And because He lives, we can live also. And by putting faith and trust in the person and work of Christ, you can live with Him for all eternity. If you have not heeded that warning or that message, I would encourage you today to give your heart to Christ. If you have received that message, let that be an encouragement to remember what God has done for you day by day. Has His instruction of grace caused you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to to live a life that is one of priority, righteousness, and godliness? And Another question I'd have for you is, where does your hope lie? Is your hope in yourself? Is your hope in earthly things? Have you put hope in the security of your job or your bank account? I want you to know, if you put your hope in those things, they will quickly fade away. They will easily be taken from you. So we put our hope in the power of God's sovereign grace. And are you motivated to ministry? See, when we have a proper perspective of God's grace, it leads us to a right answer for all of these things. And I pray that you would embrace these truths today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it provides salvation, instruction, hope, and that You purify us for Yourself to be a people um, called to be set apart. And what a privilege it is to walk in that, Lord. We also thank You and that You motivate us to ministry, that we can live out this life with purpose and not live like the ungodly or like those who are outside of Your hand in, in a vain way, but that we would live life fruitful unto Your glory, Lord. I pray for this congregation that you continue to bless them and guide them, Lord. Help them to walk faithfully before you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.